welcome everyone to the very first episode of Generative Now. This is a podcast where we talk to the builders who are creating the world's most exciting AI products and companies. We'll get their perspectives on how AI will impact the future and the world we live in right now today. I'm your host, Michael Magnano. I'm a partner at Lightspeed. We are a global venture capital firm that was one of the earliest investors in companies like Snap, Affirm, Nest, Grubhub, Giphy, and many others. And we've been active investors in artificial intelligence for years, having invested over a billion dollars across more than 50 AI native companies. Prior to joining Lightspeed, I was the co-founder and CEO of Anchor, the world's biggest podcasting platform, which was acquired by Spotify in 2019. So why are we doing this podcast? Well, we're in the middle of a tech revolution as a result of AI. And I know when I was personally building my company, I learned so many valuable lessons by listening to podcasts that interviewed founders of companies from the mobile revolution. And when we looked around Spotify and YouTube for podcasts that were putting a spotlight on the people actually building AI companies, we couldn't really find that many. So we decided to launch our own show, and that is this one, Generative Now. Our goal is to publish weekly episodes featuring conversations that are as interesting as they are insightful. And we hope you come along for the ride. And we've got an awesome first episode for you. I recently talked to Victor Riparbelli, the co-founder and CEO of Synthesia, a company that makes video production for businesses a thousand times easier. With Synthesia, users simply type in their script and AI will bring their words to life using AI-generated avatars and voices. Victor's longtime interest in generative AI goes all the way back to his childhood when he had a fascination with sci-fi and also with video games like World of Warcraft and Roller Coaster Tycoon. In his mind, those early day hobbies helped sculpt his strategic thinking and primed him for creating new tech and new businesses. So without further ado, have a listen to this conversation I had with Victor Riparbelli, the CEO and co-founder of Synthesia. Victor, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. So I would love to hear about your early days, you growing up, your interests as a kid, like give, give us the whole Victor story before we get to Synthesia. I think my path towards founding Synthesia I mean, probably started when I was very young, loved computers, loved gaming from a very early age uh, and could spend um, way more hours than my parents thought was appropriate on tinkering with the computer or playing with it. Um, probably a, a, a pretty classical background story, to be honest. I also loved science fiction, uh, grew up reading lots of books, hanging out at the local library. Um, and kind of by my by my end teenage years, figured that this interest I had in computers actually also could turn into a career, which I don't know why, but that was actually quite surprising to me. Um, but um, but but sort of picked up on that and started out doing you know building local build, building uh, websites for local businesses, e-commerce sites. Um, there's a, a, a local store in Denmark that sells tennis equipment, which I built like 12, 15 years ago. What'd you write that in if it was 12, 15 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is like, I'm not a developer. Like I'm a pretty crappy developer, but I've always been good at like, you know, just taking existing platforms and building one. So I think that one was like Magento. You, know, you could do nice. like a kind of one click deploy, set it up. You don't have to like get deep into the code, but you just like set up something that, that would do the trick for like, um, at least most like local businesses. Um, and I found myself, I think generally more interested in like the product and the growth than like being a great developer. Um, I did that for a couple of years and sort of naturally, I guess, transitioned into the Danish uh, startup ecosystem. And I started working at a, a Danish venture studio. 
I think I was employee number six or seven. And Stefan, who's my, my co-founder today, was, was like one, one employee before me. And in this venture studio, basically the kind of idea was instead of, you know, raising money and investing it in, in other companies like most VCs do, the idea here was to um, actually start the businesses themselves. Um, and so I kind of helped with that. I wasn't the founder. I usually like second or third in command. And I was always wearing this kind of product and growth hat, using my, my kind of technical jobs to, to accelerate the business towards product market fit as quickly as possible. Um, and that was really fun. I was involved in a bunch of different things, some that worked, some that didn't. But during that time, really figured out that I love building products and I knew I wanted to build a company for myself. By the end of, uh, of, of this, I, I went to, um, I did one semester at Stanford um, in this kind of exchange program at Danish University. When I came back from there, I just experienced, I think, you know, a very different culture, very different mindset. Uh, as much as I love Denmark and, and the values and, and the society that, that you know, that, that's prevalent there, there I really met people who have to think big, had crazy ideas. I just absolutely loved it. Um, so I kind of was, was in Denmark and, and I knew I wanted to start a company, but I'd also during those years working in that venture studio kind of figured that I wasn't super excited about like building accounting software or business operations tools. I had this huge interest in sci-fi and like the frontiers of technology. You mentioned sci-fi a couple of times. You mentioned like when you were a kid, you were into sci-fi. I'd love to I, th I think I know where you were about to go with this because you and I caught up, but I'd love to go back to the sci-fi thing and hear more about what what you were in, what kind of sci-fi you were into as a kid. Yeah, of course. Well, so when, when I grew up, um, I, the first console I had was a Game Boy, uh, in which I played, you know, like Mario, Mario, all those types of fun things. And also for the first time, I think fell in love with the, the Zelda series. Uh, oh, I mean, I Nintendo Zelda. Yeah, I mean... I actually just, I bought a Nintendo Switch like six months ago just to play the new Zelda. Me too. And, uh, Me too. <laughs> you know they're going to do like a movie of this now that they did the Super Mario movie and it's going to be incredible. Yeah. It's it's an absolutely amazing franchise. Um, and I think it's actually one of the fondest memory of, of my childhood is playing Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on Nintendo 64. Like just two amazing games that I, I, I could get lost in for hours. And um, when I when I got a little bit older, World of Warcraft was was definitely like a big theme in my early teenage years. Um, not something my parents thought was amazing, but when I look back at it now, I actually think that uh, you know, in moderation, I think games are just an amazing kind of microcosm of the real world that you really can train your decision making, leadership, things like that. I ran a, a quite big World of Warcraft guild when I was really? twelve or thirteen years old. And it was like, I don't know, 40, 50 people or something like that. And I remember like my voice was still, you know, very, very light because I was like 12 years old. So I had to like make my voice deeper with some TeamSpeak mod. <laughs> we could like lower the pitch a little bit. And I wasn't allowed to stay up like after 10 p.m. So when we were doing like raids and things like that, I had to kind of like pretend my computer crashed and then sneak out of bed again to start it up and then like finish the rest of the raid. Um, but I, I think even though, you know, I, I definitely think I played it, you know, probably a bit too much. Um, I think, you know, that there's like an in-game economy, like there's a bunch of people that kind of rally around doing something, even if it's like killing dragons. I think you learn so much from those things. I think it's like massively underappreciated. Um, I was actually speaking to an investor like a couple of months ago. They asked like, what was the one signal you would look for in a, in a founder? And by, you know, kind of slightly um, cheeky answer is like someone who played a lot of video games when they were a kid. <laughs> uh, assuming it was the Candy Crush. I think it teaches you so much. Yeah. I agree. So that was that, that's that's like one of the, the big things. And I also played lots of like roller coaster tycoon and Riddler and all these kind of games. Um actually in my late teenage years didn't play that much that many games. I started being interested in music production as I love music, my biggest hobby. 
outside of, of work, especially electronic music, house and techno. So I started producing, DJing. I just thought that was going to be like my career path. Um, didn't didn't become that. Uh, but uh, Why not? Why didn't you do that? I think I felt I had much more flair for building products. Like I felt like I was much better at, uh, at tech than I was at music. I didn't feel like I was like gifted. Um, so it kind of, it's still a huge interest for me. And actually like one and a half years ago, I started using music a little bit again, just as like a fun kind of little thing I do in my free time. But I do think I actually took a lot of that with me when I, when I found this in this year, uh, without jumping ahead here, because I've always had a huge interest in creative tools, maybe because I've never been like very good at them, but I love playing around in Photoshop, love After Effects. I love Ableton, um, Ableton Live, which is like a music production suite, right? And so I think a lot of the mental models around how you create content digitally, I actually think, you know, some of those things are just like rummage around in your head. It's not like I'm actively thinking about that when I think about product. But I think having those experiences and playing around with, with, with those type of technologies definitely has helped shape a lot of thinking around, um, around Synthesia, right? Where essentially we're also trying to take something that used to be a more or less entirely physical process. You run around with a camera, you film something in the real world, trying to compress that into an entirely digital workflow, which is very much what has happened to music, for example, right? You can enable some live today, you can open that up. And you can synthesize in any instrument, any sound. You can sample things in the real world. Um, doesn't mean people don't play guitar or piano anymore. But with just a MacBook, right, you can make more than any song that you can imagine. Yeah. It's it's so funny. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned video games as a quality in founders. I, I feel like another one I, I've noticed is is also music. Like I feel like a lot of founders I've met, um, and, 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 and as you know, I was a founder as well. I was a musician. I was a drummer. I played a lot of video games. I feel like it's quite common. Why, why do you think there is this correlation between musicians and entrepreneurs or creative people, I would say, and entrepreneurs? Because it seems it seems very common. I don't think it's just a coincidence that you and I are both musicians and founders. It's a good question. But I actually think I think creativity is in many ways a great um as an entrepreneur, it's obviously like a really important skill, right? Um, and I think it's just, you, you have to kind of find new solutions to existing problems. Um, and what I like about gaming is, and, and music to some extent, but if you start out with gaming, right, is that essentially what you're doing, and of course, this change, like if you're playing Candy Crush, maybe less so, but if you're playing Rollercoaster Tycoon or like these that kind of strategy game, right, that really teaches your brain to think in a different way, I think. Right? It's all about you make certain choices, they have certain um, uh, consequences, and then you sort of train your internal neural network to be good at making good decisions. And I think ultimately that's what you need to be good at as a CEO, especially when you get to the later, later stages. Right? And it's just if you don't play computer games, right, when do you get to play out that many scenarios in that short amount of time? Right? You just don't really. Um, and that's the amazing thing about games. Right? They actually simulate elements of the real world and they can do that like infinite scale. If you don't have any computers as a kid, how are you going to do that, right? Like sports is also some, you could argue, is a way of like simulating decision-making. But like the iteration cycles and like playing football is just, I would argue, like way less and much more domain-conflicted than if you're playing open-ended strategy game, for example. So I think there's something like that decision-making process that, 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 you're, that you're taught. In terms of music, I don't know. I, I, think, I think part of it is, I think if you like music, you just... You're probably like quite curious. You have a little bit mm -hmm. of a nerdy side to you, right? You love to go yeah. super deep in something specific, and, and and geek out over like a specific like snare drum or rhythmic pattern or something like that. And you can just get lost in that. And I think that's also one of the good that that's also one of the qualities you need to have as as um, as as a founder, right? And just 
liking new things. I think I, th- I think most people probably won't admit it, but don't really like new things. But I think if you're like a musician, you're like wired for liking new things. Right? It's kind of like your job is to like come up with new things all the time. Right. And spot trends and, and understand like what people care about and what people like in this given moment. Right. Which is, I think, to your point, similar to technology. Exactly. And I also think like this, NASA did this study on creativity like a while back. Um, and I forgot like the immediate details of it. But essentially when you're a kid, right, you're extremely creative. I can ask like a two-year-old to come up with a story. They come up with a great story with lots of details, right? Like when you're a kid, right? You just wake up, you don't have to think about anything. So you're free to be creative all the time. Like you're just running out in the playground. You don't have to deal with like tax bills and you know, whatever things you have to do as an adult. And then as more and more of these things pile up, our creativity eventually dwindle and we lose our creativity, right? And I think that's like, if you can keep that creativity alive, I actually think that's like a really important thing. And I think with some of these hobbies, there's, of course, many more than just the ones we're talking about here. I think they are also tools to like ensure your creativity remains high. And I think it's, it's just such an important skill right, when you have to do creative problem solving, which entrepreneurship to me really is all about. Totally. And, and, and you really got to test that out, you know, before Synthesia, uh, like, you, like you were saying briefly, you got to work uh, at the incubator and start projects. And, and, and one of the things I, I understand about you is you dabbled a bit in AR, VR. Uh, when you were doing the incubator stuff, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that because I, I do think there are connections to to generative AI and kind of what you're doing now. And obviously, it feels like AR and VR is maybe having maybe maybe finally having a moment now with Apple's Vision Pro coming soon. So, talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So this is actually after I kind of decided to to leave the, this, this sort of incubator, and um, I, I came back from, from from Stanford and had this this amazing experience. I knew I wanted to start a company. I knew I didn't want to build like accounting tools like fintech, which was which was the, the hot thing at the time. I had this interest in like frontier tech, right? And I wanted to combine that with my love for building products. So I decided to move from Copenhagen because an amaz- as amazing as a city Copenhagen is, it's not really the place to, to build AI or VR, AR companies. And so I moved to London. And my big interest there was VR and AR. So I spent something like a year and just really getting to know like lots of different people, did some consulting work with a professor and we worked for some project for like the, the UK government. We're part of setting up something called Dimension Studio, which is this big capture stage for creating VR content. So imagine you have like, you know, hundred cameras in an array, you do something in it and you can kind of spit out like a 3D asset that's animated from just that. And um, this is right when Oculus came out, which is was an amazing piece of technology, right? I got really into this and I still love VR to this day, but I think I just had this sense that the product just wasn't really there yet. I don't think the market was big enough. And I think it's like one of those mantras that is huge in Synthesia today kind of developed back then. It was like this utility over novelty, right? Hmm. Which is all about when you're doing something, you're building a product. Does it provide like actual business utility or does it provide novelty in the sense that this is like super cool. People love to talk about it. Imagine all the what ifs when this becomes like good enough. That can be like very, that can be very strong signal for like a short period of time. And that's what we've seen with all these hype cycles, right? And I think I felt like a lot of the interest that you saw from like corporates and for most people was more around the fact that it was novel. It's cool. It was new. Imagine when you can do all these things in VR, but it's like you can't really do them yet. And if you go deep enough into the state of VIR at that time, right? It was, Pretty obvious to me, at least, that it's going to take a long time before they were untethered, fixed the latency. Like, there's just so many problems to solve, right? I don't think we've gotten far, uh, far there today. But the thing that actually got me to Synthesia was that 
the realization that creating content in VR and AR is like extremely cumbersome, right? Because it is basically like making a video game. Um, and there's lots of, of researchers all around the world doing great work on how to make that content creation more efficient. And one of them was a guy called Matthias Niesner. He was an associate professor at Stanford at the time and is my co-founder today. And he did a research paper called Face to Face, which was got a lot of attention back then. He was on Jimmy Kimmel showcasing it live. And it was really? the first sort of paper. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so looking in the camera. And now I am. Hello, everybody. I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> Mr. Mike Tyson. My eyebrows work and everything. Oh, look at that. That's pretty cool. He, he was called the most handsome professor in the world by Jimmy Kimmel, which uh, <laughs> to this day, I think still is one of his, his life highlights. <laughs> That's awesome. But he'd he done this paper and basically what they demonstrated there was like using um, deep learning techniques to actually generate video. And it was, looking back at it today, it was like quite crude and it was supposed like super cherry picked. But when I saw that paper, I just felt like I saw magic for the first time. Even if it was like in a very early state, I just felt like this is this. If you extrapolate this, this is going to be a very important technology, and it's going to entirely change how we think of of media production. And that was kind of the initial spark um, that led us to form a thesis around Synthesia and 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 found the company. And and I would humbly say, right, like if you look at the world today, most of that thesis has come through much faster than we actually thought. Uh, we're now in the when middle. When was that? When was the paper? This is in 16. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, so it was like really predictive of kind of, of kind of what would happen. What do you think, um, th that's really interesting that AR and VR sort of gave birth to, to the idea for, for your company. D do you think AR and VR ever can make that leap from novelty to utility? And, and do you feel like we're about to see that? I mean, it, it strikes me that Apple, the most valuable company in the world, doesn't doesn't place uh, bets that 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 don't end up paying off in a massive way, right? Even these AirPods that I'm wearing, right, generate tens of billions of dollars for the company. So, I mean, are just by the fact that Apple is doing this, is that a signal that this is all about to change? I think so. I think the timeline is still difficult. I haven't tried the Apple um, vision yet. Yeah, me neither. I think on a long enough timeline. Obviously, computing is going to move from being on a 2D screen to being something that's 3D. I think the question with all these new technologies is always like, what is the kind of quality threshold for this to really explode, right? In, in my world, it's very much about like the uncanny valley, right? And a lot of the Gen AI things we've seen now. Once you cross that threshold, it's just completely obvious. I mean, I think even your AirPods, right? There was a time, I remember when they removed the headphone jack from the phone. And I was really pissed off because I love music. Mm. I had a lot of expensive headphones. Like, I don't want to use this Bluetooth crap. Like, yeah. It doesn't work and hard to connect. And then all of a sudden, it's just like so good that now you don't even think about using, using Bluetooth. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to be this year that VR and AR takes off. But I think, especially with all the cool things we're seeing with generative AI now, using very large models to really just push through kind of like um, some of the, the previous performance constraints that's been on all kinds of AI technology, it feels like we might also see an acceleration in, in, in both the software and the hardware that is in, uh, in AR, VR. But at one point, it's going to cross the threshold. I always think of it as like, if I could just put on a pair of sunglasses and my mom and dad could do the same back in Denmark, and it feels like we're actually sitting around the dinner table, that is obviously going to be a way better experience than talking over kind of like a, a WhatsApp call. And I would 100% use that. Um, I, I, I would too. And, and it seems like they're at least from the demo videos, it seems like they're trying to create that kind of dynamic. I, I think it like, if you see somebody in, what do they call it? Spatial computing. Mm -hmm. 
it's not a video of them. It's, I think it's actually generating some sort of image of them. So it, yeah, it'll be really, really interesting to try that out. And, and I actually think, I don't know if you've tried VR chat, um, which is this like, like with uh, Oculus. Yeah. It's like this very yeah. simple application, right? Like I'm sure it's evolved since I tried it last time, which is some years ago, but you're basically sitting around a table and you're like talking to people. And as you move your head and your headset, of course, you're like virtual character does the same. I remember I had this like really profound moment. Actually, this is all the way back in 17, where you sit, I was sitting in this like VR chat and talking to like some stranger that I don't know online. And I'm like, I, I, I lean backwards and I look around me and up because it's like fascinating in this VR world, right? And I actually felt rude because I was not looking at the person <laughs> who's talking to me, right? And it's a small thing, but I think, you know, those are the things that you don't really get in the same way on something like a Zoom call, for example. You get that kind of almost like kinetic experience. And, and I think there's something there, right, which is super powerful. I think you can, you can see the spark, like how powerful this is going to be if, uh, if it actually works. One other way of thinking of it is like when you sit in a meeting room with someone, you don't, most of the time at least, you don't physically touch them, right? It's not because you need to kind of physically touch another person to feel you're close to them. And if you can mimic the experience like 95%, then I think it will feel 95% like you're in the same room. And that is going to be incredibly powerful. I, I totally agree. Okay, so so your your journey through AR and VR ultimately leads you to this paper by your co-founder, and you start Synthesia. Tell tell us what Synthesia is before we hear the story. Yeah, sure. So at Synthesia, we well almost seven years ago now we set out on a on a pretty simple but really hard mission. We want to make it easy for everyone to make video content, uh, but we don't think of that as smaller cameras or better video editing applications. We're building technology to eventually replace the entire physical production process, right? Which means you can go from your imagination to a piece of video content without the need of studios, microphones, lights, cameras, and all the things you'd usually associate with having to make a video. And um, we're not yet at the point where you can make definitely not like a Hollywood film. Um, but uh, where we are today is the world's largest AI video platform. And essentially, we help our customers make video content. Instead of using cameras, you select one of these AI avatars that we have, you type out the script, and we have some basic video editing functionality that sits around it. Hit generate, and in just a few minutes, you have something that looks almost like a real video of a person talking to the camera. Of course, this technology is going to get you know, much better, much more complex, and you can do much more rich and interesting videos in the not-so-distant uh, future. But we found extremely strong product market fit. I think what's less obvious from the outside is the way people are using Synthesia is not that much necessarily to replace video production, but to replace text. So if you're like one of the world's largest fast food companies, for example, and you have to train and onboard millions of people every single year, you, they used to do that with like a 40-page handbook you have to sit down and read. That's pretty terrible for an employee in 2023 where everybody wants to watch and listen to content, not read. And of course, it's also terrible for the company who gets um, you know, you know, much less onboarded employees into, into their, their restaurants. Now they can make a video instead which is super powerful. And working with the video that's generated by AI, it's kind of like a word document, right? You can open it up, you can edit it, you can duplicate it, you can very easily translate it. It's very different from working with hard-baked footage from a camera. And then the force multiplier on that is that we've made it so easy to do to use that the same people who used to write that 40-page handbook, they can now make the videos themselves. That's a massive unlock, right? Because you essentially bypass the entire video production department who can focus on doing all the really cool, big, exciting brand videos and everyone else in the organization um, can can create these kind of videos themselves. So I'd say like today where we are is probably more as like an alternative to PowerPoint than an alternative to like real video production. Um, but that's just working 
and tested you well. And when we see the results from our customers in terms of how much you improve information retention with a video rather than text, it's just, uh, it's magical. So what, what, walk me through like a specific use case and like exactly what I would do if I'm the creator of this content. So you mentioned training videos, maybe a training video or, or what's another piece of content. Maybe I'm the person that created the content. What do I do? So when you start off, you have a choice if you want to make yourself as an AI avatar, uh, or if you want to use one of our stock avatars, depends quite a lot on the use case. Um, and then on the platform, it's really as simple as just like selecting your avatar, typing out the script, putting the video editing around it. In terms of the use cases, I would say where we are today, it's pretty much instructional video content. The avatars isn't really emotive or expressive enough to make something that makes you like happy or sad or, you know, um, kind of gives you, makes you feel something. Um, it's great for kind of like teaching you something. And that's very much what it's used for today. So it could be around like onboarding. It could also be, you know, one of the world's biggest tech companies with lots of distributors around the world. They used to send them out like a monthly update with, what's changed in our products, new policies, whatever. Nobody reads that PDF document. Now they can make a video instead, um, which is way more powerful. And they have to use the same amount of effort on creating it because again, it's the same people who wrote the PDF who make the videos, right? Could also be another big tech company that have 4,000 A's around the world, so massive sales force. Need to keep these folks updated on what's happening in the competitive landscape, new product launches, pricing changes. And again, used to do this, but lots of text, right? But information retention of text is like 11%. So if you scale that out to 4,000 people, then, you know, changing, switching that text out with video, which generally has around 80% information retention, is just absolutely massive, right? So they make these small, like, micro-learning videos with, hey, this new feature just launched, this is how it works. Our competitors just did this, whatever. So it's a lot about this sort of... Um, you know, it's not like the big, flashy, interesting videos that most people think about when they think of videos. It's it's much more around kind of like uh, this instructional video and in, in, inside, uh, especially the enterprise that we work with. So, so, so you had this, you and your co-founders had this vision to make it really easy for people to create video. But did you have, how did you get to these, like this use case and this, this customer uh, that, you know, ultimately finding product market fit? Did you always have this vision in mind for the use cases or... I guess walk us through the journey from starting to where you are now. Yeah. Well, I think to some extent we did what you're supposed to not do. We, we kind of started with the technology, right? Right. <laughs> we saw this right, thing. From the paper, like, the research paper. Yeah, from yeah. research paper, right? We're like, this thing is going to change the world. How do we sequence a company from where we are today until all the really cool things are going to be, be possible, right? Um, and so the initial version of the tech, which is all the way back in like 1718, was very different than what it is today. The first use case we kind of started to tackle was was AI dubbing, which is actually like making a comeback now. AI dubbing, sorry, what'd you say? AI dubbing? AI dubbing. Like voice is, dubbing. Uh, essentially, the idea is like you take a video in English, say, and then you dub it over with a German or French voice track, but then you also reanimate the face so that it looks like it was recorded in French or German or whatever, mm, right? Got it. And this is like the first product that we built and we, we went out and we... You know, we sold this to like advertising agencies, basically video production professionals um, that knew what they were doing and already producing lots of video. And what we found back then was like, it was actually not a terrible business. Like we were 12 people and I think we did like eight, 900K in revenue um, in, in the year we were selling this. But what we figured out was this is a vitamin, not a painkiller. And we are a very, very small part of a much, much larger process that we have no influence over. So to go to market here is just very difficult, right? Because we can sell it into an agency who then have to sell it into their client. And then the client has to agree on the whole 
campaign as a thing. It takes nine months before we even film something. Then it takes six months for the post-production. Um, it's, it's just like not a great market at all. But what we learned also in this process was that, you know, we, me and, and Steph, my co-founder, were just like, I think we talked to like 2,000 people in the span of like one and a half years just to build like uh, a mental model around video production from first principles. And what we figured in that process was there are billions of people in the world who are desperate to make video content, but they can't because they don't have the budget, they don't have the skills, they have no clue where to start. And for these people, even if the quality would be lower than with a, a real camera, if we can make it a thousand times more affordable and a thousand times easier, that's a huge win for them. And so that kind of was the insight that led us to saying, okay, what if instead of working with these like super high quality videos that we'll get from like an agency, what if we could build this sort of simple AI spokesperson kind of thing where you just give us the script and uh, then we'll give you a video back of the person reading that out to the camera. And so we built this like MVP actually, where we built this like very thin, uh, you know, platform where you could submit a script um, and click generate video. What actually happened then was that when you submitted that script, everybody in the office panicked because now we had to go out and try to figure <laughs> out a way to like actually make that video. And it was using AI, but it was like, it took like a PhD, <laughs> you know, two days to make one video. But we validated that this was really interesting for people. And so that led us towards this idea of, um, you know, building a product, not for video production professionals, but for everyone else. And that kind of um, all came together in, uh, in the summer of, end of summer 2020, when we launched our first SaaS product studio, which is also what we're known for today. And honestly, since then, it was, this was one of those things where like the day we launched it just went viral. And it's just been an explosive growth trajectory since then. And I think, you know, looking bad at it now, probably one of those things where we were all just like, holy F, there's something here. Yeah. If in this state of the product and the AI technology, people are willing to pay for it, like there's something big here, right? And even though we've made a lot of progress, I think the feeling here is, I think for everyone working Gen AI, we're still so early, right? Um, and this is going to be an entirely new industry. It's fascinating. I mean, it, it sounds like you went through effectively three years. I mean, you had a product, you were doing the dubbing, but it sounds like it wasn't totally working. So you kind of went through this three years of of being in the wilderness, as they say. And for sure. it feels like all of the great startup stories have this period where you're kind of searching and it might be for years. And then and then you tap into this vein and and boom, just like that, everything, everything changes. I mean, what were those three years like? I mean, did you feel like you were making progress or did it feel like you're sort of running through mud like what was that like i definitely felt like running through mud um hmm. <laughs> i think anyone who's been through those like especially when it's free if it's six months it's like man for three years is a long time to keep a team motivated to keep your own motivation high there was, it was not fun and we had several near-death moments um we obviously had to raise capital to build the company this is a, a fairly expensive technology to develop right and uh, it was just <laughs> The first rounds were really, really difficult to raise. It was an absolute shit show, to be completely honest yeah. with you. Um, so they were not fun, but we learned a lot. And I think now looking back at, back at it, I'm actually really happy that we had those three years because the amount of insights we got from first principles about video production was just so strong. I think still think we, we lean on a lot of those today. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's rough, right? Yeah. It's, it's really rough when you just feel like, you know, you're making a little bit of progress, but, uh, 
but but not really towards building an actually kind of scalable and and and, and lasting uh, company. How do you keep motivating the team? Like, how do you, how, you know, you're, 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 you're running through mud for three years. You want to, you want to hold on to your team. You want to make sure they don't leave to go do something else. Like, how'd you keep the team motivated? Well, I actually think that despite it being an uphill battle, we all fundamentally truly believe that the moment that we're in right now, we're going to, what's going to come. Like, I think all the early signs were there, right? You know, in, in 2017, 18, I remember it was like around the conferences that I had this slide of uh, an image of a, a human face generated by AI, right? And it was like 64 by 64 pixels, something like that, black and white. If you see it today, you'd be like, oh, whatever. But back then, that was that blew people's minds, like absolutely blew people's minds, including our own, right? Because how insane is it that a computer automatically can just generate a picture that, you know, more or less like looks real? And seeing the progress in our own technology and those other technologies only speeding up, not slowing down. I think everyone on team just truly had confidence, like this is going to happen. And even if Synthesi as a company didn't work out, we were just too early. Uh, and I think that's really, that's really strong, right? So um, I think that played a huge part in it. And I think also just having like, a strong thesis, I think we've always, we've always had a strong thesis internally of like how this space and how this market is going to evolve. And even if it went to something slower than we had anticipated and would want, we did see the signs that we were moving in that direction. And I think that that helped a lot in everyone's motivation. Let's talk about the technology. You, you just touched on it a little bit here about, you know, the face. Um, everyone, most of the people in this world first learned about generative AI when ChatGPT launched or maybe when Dolly launched, you know, about a year ago. Um, and that was obviously like a huge moment for so many companies was that was that moment consequential for for your company, or I mean, was your technology sort of progressing on its own independently of of what else was happening? I mean, I, I think everyone who runs an AI company will say that has definitely been consequential and's been absolutely like crazy nine ten months since the ChatGPT moment happened. For us, in terms of the technology, um, definitely, and I think you know a lot of the things we've seen working in the last twelve months is just big models work really well. Hmm. And that magnitudes of data really does make a difference, which is super exciting. For, for you as well, that's affected you as well, or, or more just like the large language models? No, that, that's affected us as well. I think that's also what just something like a DALI, for example, right? It's also, to some extent, a case of like, if you throw enough data at these things, they will eventually figure out how to, to make something that looks real. Whereas if you go sort of before that whole moment in time, the, you know, most people were still trying to like build smaller models with high quality data, spend a lot of time on like fine tuning the algorithms, figuring out like new ways of doing things instead of just throwing massive amounts of data at it. And I think, you know, throwing massive amounts of data at it has to some extent really proven that, that that was the step change, um, that, that the industry kind of needed and was waiting for. Back when we started the company, everything was about predictive AI more or less, right? So it's like, CNNs, it was like uh, you know, machine learning, a lot of stuff people were talking about as being AI. GANs were the first real big technology that started to be able to like generate especially visual content. The hard thing I think as a founder, right, is that when you're in a space like this that evolves so quickly, then you have these step changes to sort of you know come by once a year or something like that. And it's always difficult to be like, how much should you like chase that shiny new thing that looks really exciting versus continuing your existing roadmap? I think that's something everyone is like struggling with uh, that that runs a big AI company, right? It's the kind of exploitation versus exploration, 
is always really hard. Um, but I think, you know, if we look at where the world is today, look at some technology like text to speech, for example, it's also one of those things where like someone figured out that if you just throw 100,000 hours of data at these models instead of like, you know, 500 hours, they just become exponentially better than what you could have before. And I think anyone who's building AI technology today who's not thinking in, long, in line of those terms, uh, I think it's going to lose out in the long, long term. So what, what has, I would say, this realization and really the last year done maybe both to the product and the actual capabilities of the product and also the growth? Like it sounds like 2020 is when you found that product market fit and things really took off. But what did that look like post 2022, you know, October or whatever it was of, or whenever ChatGPT launched about eight months ago? What, what was the impact of that on the product and also the growth? So I'd say there's been a few things like, first of all, we've been growing really fast since we launched in 2020, much more under the radar though. Um, but, but we were growing at a really, really fast clip. When, um, when the moment with, with ChatGPT sort of happened, there's a lot of things that were exciting. You know, the obvious one is just top funnel just exploded like it did for every other AI company. Right? Why is that? Why, why, why are all the AI companies just getting crazy top of the funnel growth? I, I, I've seen that as well. Why is that? I honestly think it's just, you know, ChatGPT had such a big wow factor. It kind of pushed through. It's a bit like what we talked about earlier with VIAR, right? That was the moment for like chatbots. Like, here's a thing. You're going to ask it a question and I'll respond back to you in an almost like magical fashion, right? So th that happened. And I think everything else about AI in the slipstream of that, including like image generation, video generation, all these technologies has kind of been developed also before that. Everyone, there's this cultural moment, right? Where everyone is now thinking about AI from like the sea level all the way down to like, you know, primary school um, pupils, right? Everyone is like obsessed with this AI thing. It just creates all this momentum. Then you have all these AI influencers making lists of like, you know, these five right. tools you need to try. Like there's right. just the whole thing. That it's, all kind of, like, <laughs> it's all over TikTok. It's all over TikTok. And uh, that, that, that gave a lot of top fun to like every company out there, which is really, really awesome. Another thing I would say that happened for us is that as these technologies really matured, for us, we, we're very conscious about like what technology do we want to be the best in the world at and develop in-house and what other technologies are false multipliers of the product that we're building, right? So you take something like LLMs, for example, for text generation, amazing technology. Like we're never going to be going into building foundational text models that would make absolutely no sense for us. But what a gift it is to now have an API, right? Where you can help, you can help our customers write the script for their videos, for example, which is actually quite hard, right? So now we have a feature like many other creative tools where you can just say, hey, make me a video about fly fishing in Oregon or whatever thing. We'll write that video for you. Amazing. And um, with image generation, you have some something like the same, right? Great. You can now generate backgrounds for uh, your avatars. You can even use it to maybe generate new outfits for your avatars. Like there's all these false multipliers. And I think it just, you know, seeing all those technologies progress so quickly and change our mindset around how to build an AI first product. So, so that'd be the second thing. And then I think just the third thing from a GTM perspective, I think is, is, and it's quite important is this is now board level topic, right? In every Fortune 2000 company, what is our generative AI strategy? Right. And that has elevated a lot of the conversations, um, that, that we have and that I'm sure other of our peers are having because this is no longer this sort of little weird fridge thing, a uh, fringe thing. Now everyone is thinking about how's JDI going to impact our company? And that could be anything from like LLMs to, you know, making your internal communications more efficient. Um, but that's definitely like a great, um, a great tailwind, right? 
Uh, now that we're sort of a bit on the other side of the of the hype cycle, I think uh, you know the top funnel has gone down. I think for for everyone, which is quite natural. Now kind of the tourists are slowly kind of like disappearing. The tourists, yeah. <laughs> you you had a great tweet on this, by the way. Just to quote it really quick, you said product market fit and longevity test for generative AI companies. Do your customers overwhelmingly present what they make as AI generated? If the answer is overwhelmingly yes, you are likely monetizing novelty, not utility. I think what you're saying, but but I would love for you to clarify it is, is are these people joining because it's generative AI or because it's providing value? It feels like the former are starting to get flushed out of the system. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think it's also one of the things that I think it's important that you as a company, whether you're building an AI, it's like you'll have all these hype cycles. We've also had many hype cycles before the, the chat GPT moment, right? And I think it's just this, even though you're doing cool things with AI and everyone's excited about AI and everybody wants to talk about AI, right? It's very important to remember that the core principles of building a great product and a great company as a result of that is that you provide actual real utility for people, right? You could do a cash grab, of course, with something that's like exciting for just a few months. But if you want to build a truly lasting company um, that has happy customers and changes how they work, it has to be about utility, not just look at this cool new thing I made. And, and my point of that tweet was just when we were in that hype cycle, right? Everyone was like, now you can make videos with AI. Now you can do all these things with AI. But everyone always presented it as AI, right? Like Coca-Cola, I think that was like, for me, like top of the of the the, the, the bubble. Coca-Cola did a an ad where they were like, it was like an AI generated ad, right? Using image generation, all this stuff. And, and it's a great it, ad. Right? And they said it. They're like, this is AI generated. It's, the whole point of that is AI generated. Right. Right? Everybody who knows something about AI, you know, AI here was like, knows that it was like 5% AI generated and 95% visual effects generated, right? But it, it, it served well, right? It had that novelty factor to it. And it probably, you know, for their business objective, did really well. But if there's a company that's been like betting the business on great Coca-Cola want to make AI video now, then you'd be disappointed, right? Because once they've, you know, done your initial contract of like making that one like really cool video, then next time they have to shoot an ad and there's something else that's cool, they're not going to need your tool anymore, right? So we just always have this mindset of being, you know, maniacally focused on um, finding use cases that have real utility and being very honest with ourselves around how good is the technology actually today, right? And I think that is the key question. Um, because there are lots of people who are excited about using AI for all different kinds of things. And a lot of those things will probably happen in the future. But if you're trying to build a product today, it's really important. Like, what is the technology actually good enough for, right? And that's why, you know, when I, you know, what gets me most excited is like a cement mixing company in France with 10,000 employees that you've never heard of before, where we have 30 people using Synthesia, not because they care about AI. I think it's cool but because it makes their day-to-day job 10 times easier, right? That's the things you want to find and focus on and build your product roadmap around. You can also, of course, you know, spice it up with doing cool things that, are, that, that gets a lot of attention, gets a lot of buzz. But um, I think there are many great companies who've kind of fallen into those kind of potholes and all of a sudden like, oh, like we're doing a web-free company. We're launching a token, right? Because that's like the new cool thing to do or... VR, right? There's so many of these different cycles. Right. Um, and I think all of them presents both an opportunity, but also a huge risk um, to, to founders, um, especially if you're doing deep tech, where I think, you know, you're naturally more, you'll, you'll be pulled in, in, in those directions by, by lots of people who, who, um, who might be more interested in the novelty rather than the utility side of what you're doing. 
Totally. I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, it's, it feels like this technology is progressing so quickly and it sounds like it, it, it even has for you just in the past year. If we play this out, like what does this end up doing to traditional means of video creation? I know you said you're not trying to make Hollywood films, but maybe other companies are. I mean, what happens to cameras? What happens to timeline-based video editing? Um, in, in Synthesia, you don't even need a timeline, right? You just type a script, you tap a button, it's done. So what is, give us a, give us a peek into the future five, 10 years from now. So I, I think to a lot of people, you know, this sounds kind of crazy. I think maybe less so today than it did definitely like six years ago, but even a couple of years ago. It's like, how's it even going to work? And like, who would want to watch AI-generated videos and, and all those things, right? The best way, I think, to think about it is just looking at the history of media technology and technology in general, right? Because I think history repeats itself all the time. And even if it feels new, now that we're in the, kind of the middle of a cycle, I think we're going to just see the same thing happening again, right? When there was a time, you know, when to make music, you had to have real instruments, you had to have a huge recording studio, and there's very few people in the world who could afford to do that and knew how to do that. Then something like a drum machine was invented. And a drum, the drum machine was actually originally invented to replace drummers, right? That was like, that was the intent of the drumming machine. But it turned out the drumming machine, like, was just very far away from being something <laughs> that you can replace a drum kit with. But what it did open up was you can buy this little machine and you don't need a drum kit anymore. And you can use it with headphones. And all of a sudden we get like house and techno electronic music, right? Along with synthesizers and all these other things. And what slowly has happened is that what used to be an entirely kind of analog workflow with real instruments now is completely compressed in a MacBook, right? But you can, as we spoke about earlier, you can use software instruments, you can use samples, you can play an entire orchestra on your keyboard if you want to, right? You're not really restricted by having to go out in the physical world. But of course, people still play piano, people still play guitars, and they have some soul you can't get out of a machine. We like it as humans to do those things. I think the same thing is going to happen to video production. Um, you know, I think we're going to have a very real alternative to recording in the real world. And I think a lot of people are going to use that. But I also think we'll have, you know, like normal video that's recorded with a camera. I think people will, will like that and it'll probably just end up being a different genre than the content you can create with, um, with, with AI. And I think these, the shift is, I often think of it as like the shift from typewriting to computers, right? Like I think it's ahead of a lot of those like same elements. If you look at it from like an office and, and workplace perspective rather than a creative perspective, the, the act of writing, for example, that used to be someone's job, right? You had like dedicated secretaries whose job it was to write things down and write letters for like the CEO or whoever is in a company. And you had typewriters and that was like a whole industry around that. Then once keyboards and computers came, everyone could write, right? Now everybody, now this is a part of everyone's job to write. And we don't even think twice about that. We write SMS, we write, you know, WhatsApp messages, we write emails. We've even elevated ourselves. Like most people now also kind of designers, right? Most people can use PowerPoint if you have a, if you have a white collar job, may not be an expert. Canva, but you can kind of work Canva around Exactly. Canva is a great example of that. And I think the same thing's going to happen to video and audio. I think as humans, we want communications that are as close to a real conversation as we can. Um, the reason there's so much text in the world, not because we prefer text, is because it's the only really scalable way of communicating we've had, right? And once it's going to be as scalable to create podcasts or audio and video, I think we're just going to move towards 
um, a world in which visual and audio content and maybe someday VR will just be the default way to um, to consume content, right? Yeah, I wonder, you made some really good analogies. I wonder if, you know, vinyl is another analogy where, you know, 90% of the world, 95% of the world listens on Spotify, right? But some people like to listen on vinyl or, you know, filmmaking. So much, so many of the films we all see today are shot digitally. But every once in a while, Christopher Nolan makes a film like Oppenheimer on classic, you know, like analog film, right? Maybe it's like that, right? Where 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 the efficiency gains really are, people will use AI to generate content in the ways that are most efficient and valuable. But there will be the purists, right? That want to do something like something old school. For sure. And I also think that the best content we'll consume will be made by experts, right? And the creatives that we have today, like those who pick up all these new tools. Um, you could argue that AI at some point will become, you know, as good of a storyteller as a human being. And I, I, I definitely won't argue against it. But at least like here in, in the near term, right? We always, to some extent, have democratized video creation, right? Like we have cameras everywhere and you can record yourself without needing much more than just a smartphone. But yet, right, it is the greatest storytellers, the greatest musicians, um, who, who will win out and make the most interesting content. And I think the same will be true in the AI world, right? Like you, you can regurgitate AI music and uh, AI images a million different times and it'll just end up in kind of like the junk folder of the internet, which is already what like 99% of YouTube videos are, right? And the few ones that are really good will, will rise to the top. So I think the human ingenuity, the human storytelling element is still going to be an incredible uh, it's got an incredibly advantage, right? And the best artists, the best storytellers are generally also those who go against the stream, right? And at least right now with these models, what you are finding is that they're great at kind of spitting out reactively what's happening in the world and what kind of art people like and different kind of styles. And with music, it's going to be the same, right? Like make me a hip hop track in the style of like someone else. But Great new art usually comes from people combining two things that should have been combined, right? And create something that's like fundamentally new and interesting to the world. And I mean, I can't, of course, say that like AI will never be able to do that. But I still think that that requires more than, than just understanding news. That requires a very deep cultural and human understanding that um, at, at least so far, I don't think AI is, is anywhere near being able to, to, to comprehend and, and, and react to. How close are we to being able to make our own avatars and our own voice models instantly, right? Like, like right now, I know in, in, in the product, uh, I can make my own avatar. I think you also let me make my own voice model, but I think it requires a, a different process, a more manual process. How far are we away from me just saying, you know, not training, not, not, not even needing maybe to train my own model, just typing a sentence, wanting to do it in my image and likeness, and it just happening. I mean, honestly, I think we're like more or less almost there. Um, really? Both, both us and like other companies. You have like what's called zero shot voice cloning now, which is essentially from like just a few sentences of your voice. It can generate like a pretty good approximation of what you sound like. It'll get better with more data. Um, and you also have some other companies doing like with just a single image, they can create an avatar of you. Is that our technology? I think the quality there is still pretty far from what you can do with video. But for you to have an avatar of yourself, kind of like you're sitting and talking right now, I mean, I think we, if we put the bar as like, you know, 10 minute time investment from you, like in six to nine months, until these at least, you'll definitely be able to do that um, very rapidly. And it'll be very, very, very difficult to tell 
that is not a real video. Um, we, we're getting ready to release the next version of our avatars, which is going to take them from this bit slightly kind of robotic, very like corporate presenter style with a lot of emotions to giving them emotion and teaching them how to perform a script depending on the context, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, you put in the script of um, a Tolkien novel, for example, you probably want that to be read out kind of like an audio book, a little bit slow with like lots of intonation. Whereas if you put in the script of someone selling you like a used car, you want that to be more upbeat, you want the body language to match that. And I think it's like, as we go through these kind of iterations, we're just not far from being able to generate video and audio that is more or less indistinguishable from, from the real thing. The, the implications of that are, are, are fascinating. You know, I know you've talked about how um, Synthesia, you know, the, the, the promise of it is really being able to turn text to video really, really easily. I mean, once we have the technology you're talking about now, it almost feels like anyone could do that for any content anytime they want. You know, again, using the, the Tolkien book as an example, maybe I go to read this book and I decide, you know what, I want, I want Tolkien to just read it to me directly and I can just spin that up on my own. Uh, that, I mean, the implications are so far ranging for that, both for good and obviously also for potential abuse. You've been really, you, you and the company in general have been really thoughtful about this, about, about the potential for uh, abuse and AI safety overall. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, totally agree. I think, you know, there are so many exciting opportunities, but there's definitely also some, some scary dimensions of these technologies. Like, um, so I think, you know, when we, when we found the company uh, back almost six years ago and people were talking about deep fakes, that's like, that's the only thing people could talk about when they talked about this technology, right? We built the company on the ethical framework, which around what we call the three C's, consent, control, and collaboration, which is pretty simple. Really, it's just about like, we don't create avatars or voices of anyone without their explicit consent. So you have to go through this KYC style process to actually make yourself an avatar. Um, and control is all about like, we take a very strong stance on what kind of content you can create with Synthesia. So around 10% of the company works on AI safety moderation. And um, it's one of those problems that, uh, that seems simple on the surface, right? But, but are really, really complex once you dig into it. Um, you know, we have to, you have the content you clearly don't want, content you clearly want. And then the really difficult part is all the content in the middle, right? If you're creating crypto content, you're trying to scam someone out of their life savings, or you're trying to explain how blockchain works, but those types of things, it's still hard to do that automatically. So we also employ kind of a lot of, of humans to actually look through those scripts. Um, I think for us, we, we take it very seriously that we should, that we play in a very important role in how these technologies are kind of, you know, integrated into society. And I think every company should. And I think if you look at most of the big companies, at least, most people are taking that seriously. OpenAI does a lot of work on making sure their models don't spit out bias, disinformation, misinformation. So I'm actually really happy to see the, the industry kind of rally around this. Um, I think for me and for us, you know, I, I think of it as like two problems. There's one, which is, you know, how do we make sure Synthesia is not misused by anyone? That's what I just sort of described before. And I feel fairly good about that. With, with these things, content moderation is hard. We're, we're never going to be perfect, um, but I think we're investing a lot of time in it. I'm actually really confident where we are at the moment. The other part of this is like outside of Synthesia, these technologies will develop, not just around video generation, um, and that's much harder to control, right? You'll have a lot of open source that comes out, and I'm definitely pro-open source, but you know, it, if you look at like the bad actors today that are using open source because that's, of course, come to like no uh, safeguards around it, 
there might be other companies with kind of less ethical actors. You'll have lots of other problems around these things. And without going too deep on it, because I can talk about this for hours. Yeah. The, the, the kind we'll of, do a separate the, episode on that. <laughs> the tech that I find really interesting, the solution to this problem, the obvious ones is like education, for example, right? We need to expose people to this type of content as quickly as we can in good positive use cases so that people understand that this is now possible. That's like, you know, ground level. I really hope that schools start teaching people about generative AI, make them generate images, use chat GPT, Synthesia, whatever. That, that, that goes without saying. Education is super important. Um, there's been for many years this like, you know, detection idea that's still floating around. And I think it might, you know, be one signal you can use in the future. But the problem with like deep fake detection, for example, is that it's super unstable, provides a potentially false signal. And it's an internal cat and mouse game, right? Like the people who are motivated to try and bypass those systems will put a lot of effort into doing it. So I don't think that's the solution. What I think is, is really interesting is this idea of, of provenance. So we're working with Adobe on this. They have something called the hmm. C2PA, Content Authenticity yep. Initiative. I've heard, this, I've heard a bit about this. It's really, really it's, interesting. It's super cool technology. The idea is basically that you want to kind of have a provenance chain for all content you consume online so that you as a user know who created it, know was it uploaded, how was it created. Um, and this goes above just uh, outside of just like generative AI, right? This could also just be, uh, you know, any kind of video clip where it's actually originated from. We don't know that today. And you could do that by, by essentially um, embedding this kind of invisible watermark slash metadata inside the continent itself. And if you have that, I think we could move to a, an internet where the default would be that you're watching trusted content and if you're seeing something where there's no provenance chain, you as a user would be alerted to this. That's kind of the opposite of how this like trust system works today, right? So if you go to Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you will have celebrities that are kind of high-risk targets. And they'll have like a verification thing so that you as a user know that they are verified and it's actually them. So the way it works today is that you are actively told if something is verified. We want to move to a world where you're told if something is not verified, right? Um, and so I think that from, you know, profiles and social media networks all the way down to, con to like the individual piece of content, if we start tagging all this content, we can actually move into a world where you as a user will have a, probably, a, hopefully a fairly good um, way to assess and critique the content that you're watching online. It's a gigantic task from a technological perspective, and it's definitely not going to be easy, but with music, this has kind of already happened, right? If you upload a uh, if you upload a video of yourself dancing to Michael Jackson in your bedroom, YouTube will analyze the video when you upload it. They'll detect that there's some copyrighted music in here. Then they'll slap an ad in the middle so they can pay the rights holders. And this is sort of like the system we want, right? I usually explain it as like Shazam, but for media content, where when you're when you're consuming some content, you as a user can kind of like Shazam it, and you'll be able to see roughly kind of where it originated from. Because this does this solves for not just the deep fake problem, it also solves the problems with you taking a video of an explosion that happened seven years ago somewhere and then saying that it happened yesterday, for example, which is most misinformation, disinformation today revolves around like um what's called shallow fakes, right? So um I, I, I'm really excited about that that kind of path to the technology. And I think great strides have been made toward it, but but it really requires that the whole ecosystem collaborates from Content creation tools like us, all the way to distribution platforms like uh, like like YouTube and and Meta's platform and so on. It's so interesting. Yeah, I was talking with uh, 
uh, Adobe's Scott Belsky recently about this exact problem that you're talking about. And, and uh, you know, we were discussing how music, as you just pointed out, has a similar structure that's already in place that people have been bad mouthing for decades, right? It's a very antiquated system. It's extremely manual. But now that it was as we enter this this world of AI, where everything that's get cre gets created is a derivative of a derivative of a derivative, it's actually like kind of a model for what the future should be. Um, and so it's pretty cool to to hear that companies like yours and Adobe are, are heading in that direction. Very very cool. What what do you think about for for Synthesia? What do you think about other media formats? Will you always be super focused on video, or are there other other formats you want to tackle eventually? So the way we look at, at like AI video today is that it's still incredibly early, right? We're kind of like at the time in history when like the first websites came out, they looked like a newspaper on a screen, right? That was kind of like what people could imagine. They would like take their physical newspaper, put it onto a screen. And already that was a pretty good product, right? Like it's pretty cool to just sit behind your computer and like go to a website and you can kind of read the newspaper. Since then, people then figured out that you can actually make links. That's pretty cool. You can make video and audio. You connect people together in like a commentary field or whatever. You can, you can do so many things on a website that you obviously cannot do with a newspaper, right? And today, like the structure and the mental model on a website and a newspaper is just it's so completely different. But they started out looking very much the same, right? And I think that's also where we are with AI video and AI content actually in general, that we're still in this phase where like what we're doing today is essentially offering you a better way of creating MP4 files because we've kind of taken the camera out of the equation. And that's really powerful in itself, right? as I think, you know, the growth of the company and everything we've done so far kind of proves. But as time goes on, I think we'll see AI video and AI content in general evolve into its own new type of media format. It's so hard to predict what that's going to look like. But once you remove all the constraints of working with hot-baked linear video footage, it's just obvious that this is going to happen, right? Um, and that's really what I think is going to happen here, right? I think in our world, you know, videos will be non-linear. Maybe you can talk to the avatar. If there's something you don't understand in the video that you're watching, it can be interactive. Like, we do so many things with these videos that we probably can't really comprehend yet. And with music, right, maybe it's like, you know, every time you play a song, it's like, played slightly different if you wanted to, right? You could do like a slightly different grum shuffle or slightly different melody. Like I think it's going to afford all these new types of media formats. And so for us, the way I think of Synthesia in the long term is that we've only been really, really successful if we've managed to actually breed a new media format. That's not an MP4 file, but it's something different, right? And, um, and that's very exciting. I think that's ultimately what I just can't wait to see. We know that the technology is going to get good enough to synthesize extremely lifelike photo real video content. But what are people going to do with this, right? That's, that to me is the exciting thing, right? And I think it's, I'm excited about that because I feel like this, it's like being in the middle of when electronic music was invented, right? Or something like that, where you have all these people experimenting and doing different things with it. And in my lifetime, we've already seen it. You know, I think when, when, um, when live streaming, for example, I love this example in particular, became, you know, a technology that we could put into our mobile phones and you could just live stream from anywhere, right? And people kind of linked it with broadcasting because that's the that's the way you could think about that. And all the McKinsey consultants was like, everybody's going to start TV stations, right? Everybody's going to do all these things that people are doing with, with live TV. And absolutely no one had guessed that the $1 billion use case was going to be watching other people play computer games on Twitch, right? <laughs> For all these sort of things where... 
there's something there about if you know the game, you can jump into a stream at any time and you'll have full context of what's going on. That's pretty well suited for like internet streaming, right? There's, you know, this whole community around you. There's all these different things that just all kind of came together. And that was just like, okay, Twitch is the thing, right? That's the thing. That's what all everyone wants to do. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that kind of made live streaming into a different format. Now YouTube has come after it, but that took YouTube like five years, I think, right? Before they had a good live streaming product. And so I think, you know, we're going to see this play out again. And again, like my, my mental model, this is just history repeats itself over and over and over again. And we always think it's different this time, but it just rarely is, right? So I, I am even internally, you know, we're very kind of like, we don't want to be prescriptive around what we think this is going to look like. We want to learn with our customers and sort of, you know, one feature at a time, build our way towards that, that future. Um, but I can't wait to see where we are in three years time. It's going to be very exciting. It's so true. And it's so interesting, right? Like it, it almost feels like we're in this phase of AI right now where we're trying to map everything that gets done to existing formats or, or legacy formats, right? And to use your example from earlier, it's like when the drum machine came out, you know, the first use cases were probably, how do I replace the, the kick drum in this rock song? And it's like, no, 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 this isn't actually, this isn't for rock. This is a whole new genre. And it's called electronic music, right? Like if you, and if you take that example, right, it's like, you can do things with a drum machine you could never do with a real drummer, right? Right. Like you, you, you could literally have like 10 drummers and 10 different drum tracks um, in, in a machine that's like the size of like a VHS machine or something like that back then, right? And you could play, you know, at speeds and like different patterns and overlapping ways you really couldn't do before. And, and that is the exciting thing about new technology, I think, right? It's just... Absolutely. It's, it's, and and I, I think it's so... I think a, a good mental model for people who are building AI today really is like, what is it you can do with this technology that you couldn't really do before? Um, there's one, you know, element of this, which is just like, because you want to do something cool and exciting, but it's also, if you can anger it to something, um, you, you know, that, that kind of, if you, if you anger it to this like newspaper on a screen sort of thing, if that's like what you're building for an incumbent, it's also going to be much easier to just add that as a feature to whatever product that they already have. Whereas if you're building something fundamentally new, that where everything revolves around for us, that would be AI voices and AI avatars. You can build something very new, very cool, very unique, as opposed to if you're just like bolting AI onto a customer support chatbot or whatever, right? Um, I, my, my favorite example right now is like character AI. I don't know if you're familiar with that company. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like, if you told people one and a half year ago, or two years ago, that one of the most retentive use cases for like chatbots was going to be people talking to LLMs for hours, right? Like this, that's just insane for hours on end, despite knowing that it's an AI chatbot they're talking to. People would have thought you were ludicrous, right? You wouldn't believe it. Yeah. You wouldn't believe you wouldn't it. Believe but this it. is now one of the things where like, that is probably one of the most promising AI companies right now who did something completely new, right? And it's not about like creative writing. This is literally about like having an AI friend or whatever, way to phrase it. And so I think we'll see so many more of these examples in, in the next like 12 to 18 months now that these technologies are kind of like more broadly available, easy to build with. And it's just going to be exciting to see what, what people build. Totally. Before we wrap, I have a couple of fun ones for you. So um, obviously, you know, Synthesia is easily one of the most hyped, one of the most exciting AI companies of, of the past year. What has been some of the fun kind of results of this? I'll, and I'll just throw out a couple examples. Uh, I saw that Messi made a video using the product. I saw that you recently went to 10 Downing Street. Like, talk about some of the some of the fun things that have happened over the past year. 
Um, and there's so many good memories. Um, I actually think one of the, the best ones is like all the way in the beginning uh, when we started the company. This kind of sounds like one of those founding stories that are kind of made up after the fact, but everything here is actually 100% true. So when we tried to raise the first round of funding, we, you know, we thought we had like these amazing professors, great idea. We were like, I think it was 24, 25 at the time. So we went out into London where we're based, right? And we just got no, no, no. I think we got like a little bit under like a hundred no's, like nobody bought into it, right? It sounded crazy. And uh, I think, I don't think we were like, we're not the typical founders uh, that, that people were looking to back. And so after this very long, very painful period, close to giving up, we've like, you know, we liquidated all of our Bitcoin and crypto stuff, <laughs> like pay for like our first employee to like build the tech. <laughs> then Stefan, my co-founder, um, sends an email, a cold email to Mark Cuban, which he's found his email in the Sony hack from a few years before. saying, hey, Mark, we're building this, um, this technology. Do you think it's interesting? He replies back five minutes later. I, of course, don't believe him. I think he's just like pulling a joke on me. But it was actually him. And then we have a 13-hour-long email conversation with Mark Cuban asking insanely good questions. He knew everything about this technology. He'd implemented himself um, in his wow. free time with, with Electra. He, he, he already is the, one of those things where like the thesis we completely agreed on, he was like totally on board with that. He was just trying to understand how we were thinking about actually getting there. And after those 13 hours, he just said, I'll do the million dollars, assuming diligence goes through. And that was like 4 a.m. for us. And, uh, you know, had, a, had some, uh, some champagne and then we jumped on a plane to L.A. to, to see him in, in the days wow. after. And that was just like an absolutely magical experience. And to this day, still so impressed by Mark. I think his public image and like um, uh, Shark Tank is, is great. But he is like, he really gets technology and he understood generative AI like uh, way before anyone else we met, at least, which is um, which was awesome, and it's been fantastic to partner with him. That's super cool. That is an amazing story. Um, real quick, your company's based in London. Uh, there's a lot of buzz right now about Europe, London, and Europe more broadly as as a as a very sort of growing tech hub. G- give me your thoughts on on Europe tech. I think um, I think we're in a good spot, right? I think you know when we started six seven years ago. Definitely a lot harder. I think there's been a few things that has helped significantly. I actually think COVID has been a huge factor here because in COVID, right, everybody had to raise money entirely via Zoom. Like I used to do the pilgrimages to, to the Bay Area um, before COVID to try and try and raise, raise funds. But over COVID, right, the whole world just became more global. And I think that's been really helpful to, to European companies who all of a sudden had much better access to the American investors, American market, which... You know, my read on this is especially for the seed stage, it's been great because as much as I love Europe, I think European investors are still more of the kind of, you know, reduce the risks mindset rather than like seeing the upside. Um, so I think a lot of money, of course, went into European startups in the last couple of years. That's really awesome to see. Um, and it's with the remote culture, it's much less controversial now to be based in Europe. And in AI specifically, there's also just amazing talent, specifically in London and that is just very important for an ecosystem to develop. So we have Oxford, UCL, King's Imperial here, and they are some of the world's leading AI labs. You take that, and then you combine it with some earlier success stories. So DeepMind, for example, was founded in London at UCL, right? You really start to get this very healthy ecosystem of people wanting to not just work in FANG and in research, but also start companies. So I feel like Europe is a great place to be. 
Um, there's pros and cons to everything, but uh, I think as a founder, I think like you, when you're doing something that works, there's less competition because there's less great companies in Europe. Uh, as much as I hate to say it, and um, well, it's early. It's early days. <laughs> it's early, but I, I think that is like I think that's a, that's actually a, a quite a good competitive advantage. And I'm I'm personally really excited to see um, where Europe will go. One of the, the sort of scary things for Europe right now is the AI Act. I don't know how much you've been following that, but yeah, AI bit. regulation has caused a huge topic around the world. I'm very pro regulation. I think if you have you know the right safeguards, then companies should be held responsible. But some of the suggestions that are up at the moment, um, I don't think it's going to be beneficial to Europe's growth in the long term from um, from a startup and AI perspective, fortunately. This has been awesome. Thank you so much, Victor. Uh, really appreciate you coming on and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Mike. This was fun. Speak soon. Thank you so much for tuning into my conversation with Victor. Follow Generative Now, this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Spotify or YouTube or Apple Podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, please do us a favor and rate and review it. That really helps. If you want to hear more from me or Lightspeed, you could follow me at Mignano on X slash Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, everywhere else. And if you want to follow Lightspeed, you can follow them at Lightspeed VP on all those same platforms. Thanks again to Victor. And Generative Now is produced by Lightspeed in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, including Rebecca Chason, Brian Rivers, Grace Pena, Amy Machado, and Rachel King. We will be back next week with another awesome conversation. We hope you tune in. Don't miss it. See ya.